You're listening to The Lenses Podcast from Shades Mountain Baptist Church, engaging the world through the lens of the gospel. For more information and resources, visit shades.org slash lenses. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome back. Glad you're here for session number two. I'm glad that so many of you are interested in taxation. Uh, I can tell that this is the motivating issue of your life. Sick crowd, but yes, thank you. <clears throat> So tonight is part two. Last week was part one, obviously. And it, it was in, subtitled, Here We Rest. That was the first state motto of, of Alabama. The second state motto of Alabama, the one that is our current state motto, is we dare defend our rights. And so if uh, last week was Here We Rest, it was more diagnostic. And this week, it's going to be more prescriptive, probably. Um, let's talk for a little bit about what we covered last week. There's a, a quick summary, if you weren't here, in the, the one-pager that you were passed out. Uh, to quickly recap and set the stage, Forbes magazine in June of this year uh, gave us something that was not breaking news. Alabama is a political hot mess right now. The heads of all three branches of government are facing legal trouble and removal from office. The state has experienced multiple budget shortfalls in recent years and raised taxes in 2015, making Alabama an outlier in a region filled with states reducing tax burdens and reforming government. Is everybody aware of all these? Now, let's look at Tennessee. Tennessee has a $600 million surplus. And there's an article the other day, you know, there's some UT fan everywhere. who says, you know, Tennessee beats Alabama in more than one way. Well, maybe not in football. But um, there's one reason you know, we're having these, these cyclical problems is uh, our budgeting process and, and the fact that we really don't have a stable tax system. The, uh, the two budgets we talked about last week were the general fund budget and the education trust fund budget. Now, remember, the ETF funds public education, K through 12, and to some extent, colleges. And as many of you know, having incurred large amounts of student debt, uh, the ETF is being used more and more to fund K through 12 and less and less to fund college education and tuition, right, or, ed- or funding. Uh, your, your tuition bills are going up. You're getting nicer dorms at Alabama and Auburn. I know Sanford too. But those prices are going up. Again, it's limited dollars, uh, limited tax base. Now, the general fund is, is everything else except roads and bridges. There's a third fund that we won't talk about tonight. Uh, the general fund is, is everything. State troopers, DHR, um, prisons, um, Medicaid, courts, um, state employees. Everything else in the state is basically paid for by the general fund. The general fund is about one-fourth the size of the education trust fund in terms of appropriation and budgeting. And remember the pie charts we had is to... The money coming in and the pie charts, the money being appropriated, going out. And we pointed out that um, our education trust fund is heavily reliant on sales tax and individual income tax. It is not heavily reliant on property tax or most corporate taxes. And here's where I stay again, as Danny will enjoy, is everything I say tonight is only my own personal view. Maybe Karen will share it. It is not the view of my law firm or Several of my clients, one of which, as I pointed out last week, fired me because of one of the recommendations I made in the, in the article that you have. And, and again, if you really want to get a good night's sleep, read this 45 minutes before you go to sleep. This is about a six-month project through the Covenant Law Review uh, 13 years ago. And as I point out to Adam, nothing's really changed since then. So uh, this is on the website now, uh, Compliments of Jacob. So uh, I hope you'll take a look at it sometime. Um, again, we're going to try to move through the, the last session pretty quickly and pick up uh, kind of where we left off. Um, Adam? Yeah, so one of the things that Bruce talked about was ad valorem taxes, property taxes. Uh, the Alabama Constitution has amendment number 373, which puts you about halfway through the amendments to the Alabama Constitution. It's called the Lid Bill. It was passed in 1978, and it includes no cap on the amount of timberland or farmland that receive current use valuation. Um, This is a difference 
well, it's a difference with almost every other state, in definitely our surrounding states. Yeah, yeah, read this. Timberland makes up approximately 71% of the land mass of Alabama, but contributes only about 2% of the tax revenue. Um, education funding, which is K-12 through college, as Bruce said, consumes about 51.4% of appropriations from both our state budgets, but less than 2% of our state budget is derived from property taxes. That's about $75.7 million. Alabama is the, in the bottom 10 states nationally for instructional dollars spent per pupil. Of the top 10 school systems in Alabama, only two, Coleman City and Trussell City, spend less than $7,074 of instructional dollars per pupil. The average of the top 10 is $7,624, and the state average is $6,656. So... Right. So I take it then the top ten schools really skew the average above what it would otherwise. It's Mountain be. Brook. Yeah, Mountain Brook skews the average yeah. for yeah. almost Best everything. Davia too. Yeah, yeah. Homewood. All right. Now remember the chart we showed you just as kind of a surprise. Um, Alabama's per capita tax revenue is the lowest in the country. Now we, we complain about our taxes being too high, and I think you're right. On the federal side, they are. Uh, but when you look at and I'm you know, I, I won't use numbers, but when you write a check to the feds for $1,000, you write a check to Alabama for $50, there's something wrong there, you know? And, and I've even had people come up to me and say, you know, I'm happy with the way taxes are, but I, I know they're too low for, for the services we're expecting out of our city and state and county governments these days, but, you know, I'm kind of happy the way it is. So, you know, uh, I'm just going to sit back and listen and watch, and, uh, you know, if something happens, fine, but I'm just going to be an innocent bystander. You've seen that, Adam? Yep. Need to talk about Medicaid and corrections. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so in 2016, the Medicaid and corrections allocations from the state budget funds, uh, they consumed 59.72% of the Alabama general fund budget, which was up from 34 or 33% in 1994. That is going to continue to eat away at our state budget dollars because of two things. Number one, uh, corrections are governed by the United States Constitution, which says what your conditions of confinement can be. And if you have a federal judge to enter a consent decree saying that your conditions of confinement are unconstitutionally bad, then that results in a change in the way that you've got to fund your prisons. Um, the next thing, Medicaid, which largely funds poor folks, especially poor kids, is being very highly taxed currently, not taxed by the state, but it, it's consuming a lot of resources, and here's why. In 2014, 34% of Alabama kids received supplemental SSI cash payments or other state payments. Um, in between 2014 and 2010, and this is according to the Kids, Kids Count Foundation, by the way, 192,000 Alabama kids lived in census tracts with poverty rates of 30% or more. That's 16% of Alabama kids that live in situations of endemic poverty. And it's not much better for uh, infant mortality, for the number of kids that live with both parents or at least one parent. Alabama families are failing. They're failing. And Medicaid paid for 29,810 births in Alabama in 2013. That's 53% of all the kids born in Alabama in 2013, Medicaid was the primary source of funding. 53%. That's amazing. Mm. Well, and the thing we didn't mention here is the statistics I threw out at you last week. I work for a group called the Alabama Opportunity Scholarship Fund, which is a scholarship granting organization for low-income families. We had 15,000, count of 15,000 applications from low-income families for kids to move from a failing public school, either to a private school or to a non-failing public school. 15,000. Does that tell you there's a need out there? And I remember with, with the AEA and the negotiations, the definition of a failing public school is, is basically something that barely has the doors open and the air conditioning running. It's the lowest 5% in terms of test scores, the lowest 5%. So you've got kids in... Just that group, 15,000 kids asking for help to be moved to another better public school or a private school. That, that, that just, just shocks me.
And because we base our tax system in large part on sales taxes, during the recession you would see a dip in collections. Everybody saw a dip in collections regardless of what their system was based on. Largely, you know how you had the old saying, thank God for Mississippi, right? Um, well, let's, let's talk about some other of our comparators. Would you think that we'd be about the same as Kentucky, right, as far as what we collect? What about Arkansas, right? We're, we got to be better than Arkansas, right? Uh, they have more fish than people over there, more trout. It's not bad, but. Well, we're not. Uh, if you look at that bottom line right there, that orangish red line, that's our state collections. The the next line up is Kentucky, which is fully recovered from where it was before the recession. The next line up from that is the 50 state average, and then that top line, that there's Kentucky. So, um, I mean, it, it's it's kind of like basketball season, Ryan, and that. Sort of what we'd expect to see. Yeah, where's Crew Smith when we need him? Yeah. Or Tom Boston. So if we, if we dare to defend our rights, then what rights do we have? What obligations do we have, more importantly, uh, as citizens in this democracy and as Christians? How do we create an unapologetically Christian framework to address this issue of taxation, of funding state government, and of binding ourselves together one cohesive group as opposed to everybody looking out for their own best interests. Um, Let's talk for a second about localizing this because when you think about the whole state, it can seem a little overwhelming. Our mission as a church is to send transformed people to influence their world for Christ. And if we're going to do that, how do we do that? What do we base it on, Bruce? Well, I think we base it on the Great Commission. I mean, let's all read the Great Commission together, okay? Read this as, as being addressed to you personally, okay? All right. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That's a commission not to the church itself, but to each of us. Uh, and again, are we fulfilling that commission today? And when you build that out, there are ways that we can use it, a Christian ethical framework that is distinctive that can help us do this. And I, I didn't want to botch this quote, so I just put the whole thing up on the slide. Uh, Russell Moore, who's the chair of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, wrote this. Back in October of 2010, I think it still rings true. The content of this mission is not just personal regeneration, but disciple-making. It is not just teaching, but teaching, quote, them to observe all I have commanded you. The mission is, this mission is summed up in the gospel as a message of reconciliation that is both vertical and horizontal, establishing peace with both God and neighbor. The, the scripture tells us to love our neighbor as yourself. This is not simply a spiritual ministry. As the example Jesus gives us is of a holistic caring for physical and economic needs of a wounded person, not to mention the transcending of steep ethnic hostilities. As theologian Carl F.H. Henry reminded evangelicals a generation ago, one does not love oneself simply in spiritual ways, but holistically. Of course, Jesus' ministry would be about such things. After all, the Bible shows us from the beginning that the scope of the curse is holistic in its destruction personal, cosmic, social, vocational, and the gospel is holistic in its restoration, personal, cosmic, social, and vocational. So if we're going to follow that ethical teaching, I believe we have an obligation to create and support structures and systems that at least reflect values that we don't see as foreign to the gospel. Let's give them a few examples. Just a few, and there are a dozen more. Let's just let's hit a few of these. Hear this, you that trample on the needy and bring to ruin the poor of the land, Amos 8.4. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine, Amos 5.11. Can I tolerate wicked scales and a bag of dishonest weights, Micah 6.11. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask, by saying, 
all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them? Or where is the God of justice? Malachi 2.17. Learn to do what is right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Isaiah 1.17. Read these with me, y'all. Woe to you who add house to house. This is one I found. And join field to field. This is not like a subdivision. Until no space is left and you live alone in the land. Isaiah 5.8. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people from their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. Isaiah 10.1 and 2. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Malachi 3.5. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Haggai 1.6. I think you're picking up something, and that's if you don't think the gospel has something to say to you about your money and the way it affects other people and the way that systems are created, you need to read the Minor Prophets because it's all over the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament, too. Bruce, why don't you do the first one? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? James 2.5. From everyone who has given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Luke twelve forty eight. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied. If it is not accompanied by action, is dead. That's James two fourteen through 17. And the last one we're going to give you is James 5, 1 through 6. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth is rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of the slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. That seems fairly clear in its instruction. Am I wrong about that, Bruce? I think you're dead on point. I mean, these are only a a snippet of the the verses we found on uh, taking care of the least of these. So, thinking more broadly about this, what we don't want is a system that picks winners and losers before these people are born. Because if you're born with no shot, if you're born alienated from uh, any sense of opportunity, then that leads to all sorts of moral decline, not just in the people without opportunity, but also in the people who put their finger on the scale. Uh, the concept behind this is called wealth inequality and inequality of mobility, right? And the Stanford University Center for Poverty and Inequality released their Poverty and Inequality Report from 2015. It analyzed nationally what some areas did well and what some areas did poorly to create the ability of a kid who was born poor to move up through the economic ladder and end up not poor, which seems like a great goal. It seems like a great opportunity. Let's go through these bullets real quickly. There's less intergenerational mobility in the United States than uh, is sometimes appreciated by the public. So we think here in America, okay, you've got a great opportunity. You're born in the, the land of the free and the home of the brave, and everybody's got a chance if you just work hard and play by the rules, which is right for some people, but isn't right for everybody. I don't mean right as in, uh, you know, an optimal outcome. I mean right as in that's not an accurate statement. It's like factually inaccurate. And you remember how last week I said that, you know, 
you can be upset by it and you can be scared by it, but math is math. When we're talking about budgeting and state government, again, you can be upset by it and you can be scared by it, but this is math. This is statistics, and this is an accurate representation of what's going on. Intergenerational mobility is not declining in America. When poor children born in 1971, which was before I was born, in 1986, which was after I was born, are compared, one finds a slight increase in the chances of reaching the top fifth of the income distribution by age 28. There is substantial variation, however, within the United States in the prospects of exiting poverty. Uh, In high-mobility states, the the mobility rates are higher than rates in most other developed countries. That means, like, other G8 nations, other G20 nations, we do a better job than they do in high-mobility areas of the United States creating an environment where kids who are born poor don't stay poor for the rest of their lives, or at least aren't guaranteed to. However, in low-mobility areas of the United States, which tend to be in the South, fewer than 1 in 20 poor children reach the top quintile. That's a rate lower than any developed country for which data have been analyzed to date. 1 in 20. So, if you work hard and you play by the rules in those areas, you still don't have a good shot. You still don't have a fair shot. And if we are going to be transforming the world around us with the gospel, we need to understand that here in our own state, here in our home, there are going to be people who have experiences vastly different from the experience that most of us in this room have had. And people might not necessarily be as receptive to the message of Jesus Christ from people who they view as creating a system that has oppressed them. Let's take a look at the, uh, the next slide, if we could, Charlie. Uh, I'm sorry, the one after this. That's yeah. a map that shows income mobility. Mobility rates are relatively low in areas with high income and racial segregation. Have you noticed here in our own city that we might have rates of high income segregation and high racial segregation? Mobility rates are relatively high in areas with school quality, local tax rates, social capital, and marriage rates. So what you're seeing is those areas that are lighter colored, that's where you're more likely to see uh, higher marriage rates, higher property taxes, and better school quality. In the darker colored areas, the darker red areas, what you see is low opportunity. And it strikes me as I sit here that those are same, the same or similar counties and metropolitan statistical areas that you would see if you took a poll of people who said, well, what is the Bible Belt? I mean, it it tracks fairly closely. Well, let's move on to uh, the the kind of taxation that we're accused of having in Alabama. And that is, in some cases, what's called regressive taxation. And this is my definition. I, I think it's correct, but you can always amend it. A regressive tax is one that increases... As a relative proportion, as income decreases, okay, think about that. Tax goes up as a proportion of income as income goes down. Flip that over to progressive, which I don't really like that word, but progressive, in some cases I do, but not with, anyways, I'll stop there. Uh, progressive is a, is a tax that goes up as income goes up, right? That, that's, you know, tax brackets whatever you may want to call it. Um, you know, so, so you talk about a flat tax. You know, that's simple, but sometimes that becomes a regressive tax uh, to the poor versus the, the upper echelon. It, it's a lot easier to pay 5% of your income if you're making a million dollars rather than 5% of your income if you're making 10000 right? So some examples, which we talked about last week, just to remind you, uh, and the classic case is, is the Alabama sales tax. Uh, Alabama is one of the top five in the country, if not number four in the highest combined city, county, state sales tax in the country. Uh, we actually may be three now, right now. Uh, and, and here's the rub. Alabama is one of the few states, only four, 
that imposes sales tax on food and non-prescription drugs, groceries of all kinds. And we talked about that a minute last week. The problem is, you remember the, the hole, the revenue hole? If you take the food or take the tax off food, how much money that costs the state? It's about three-quarters of a billion with a B dollars. So the, the, the best argument has always been, well, okay, fine, we'll repeal that, but where do we find the money? Well, uh, some of us drafted a bill several years ago that said that, and, and, and let me, as I stop here, there's, I found this really good uh, on the Alabama Rise uh, Policy Project. This is a great little book called the Alabama Tax and Budget Handbook. It's on the Alabama Rise website. I don't agree with all the recommendations, but their, their charts and history is very good. So if you want to get into depth, read the Alabama Rise Tax and Budget Handbook. But a they, link is provided on that, that one sheet or in front of you. Yeah. But the idea would be, okay, fine, because you know, this costs so much money. Why? Well, several reasons. One is um, we all consume a certain amount of food. We're not going to vary that much in the amount of food we eat, right? Price may go up, price may go up, but you know, we've got to feed our families. We could go to the restaurants more often. But in most states, restaurant food is not exempt from sales tax. It's only food that you buy at a grocery store or whatever. So you get into arguments about, okay, if I buy a Krispy Kreme donut from Krispy Kreme versus Publix, some states say that's a different rule. That's, that's a real mess. Actually, it's not that much of a mess because I'm willing to pay the extra to get it hot now. This is not time for commercials, plant. <laughs> Just because you're one of your clients. Uh, so there's an idea out there, and I want you to advance this to your legislators. And that is, figure out the average income of a four-person, five-person family at below poverty level, which is usually around twenty-two to 23000 maybe twenty-four now, and figure out how much sales tax they would normally pay in a year. We have a number on that. And rebate that to them every year, either as a credit on the income tax return or as a cash rebate. Okay. It keeps retailers and the cash registers out of the mess of determining what's a, a taxable donut or a cookie, and it gives them cash. But who does it not give cash to? Are millions of illegal aliens in this state. And let me tell you, the counts are way low, way low. People driving through the state on the way to Florida or Tennessee or the whatever, uh, folks don't live here. We're, if you take sales tax off food... The rich folks, the poor folks, the traveling folks, the folks who pay no tax other than sales tax are off the hook. And that's another argument. A lot of people say, look, uh, the, the, the undocumented aliens in this state, that's the only tax they pay. So there are arguments. But there's a ways to resolve this. And the fiscal note, the, the revenue hit with that kind of a rebate bill is like 10% of, what, of the $750 million hole. So there are ways to fix this. Idaho, Utah, a couple other states have done this. So talk to your legislators about that kind of a way to resolve this. I'm with you. I mean, we had a poll last week. Almost all of you said, yes, we should take sales tax off food. And then I asked, all right, give me some ideas on how to fill that hole. Everybody kind of went crickets because there is no great answer for that. The, the other thing is, and this is our Constitution, do you know your personal exemption for your income tax is in the 1901 Constitution? Why? It's in the 1939 amendments to the 1901 Constitution, of which we now have 750-plus amendments. Why? It makes it very difficult to adjust, right? We've adjusted it once uh, in the last 15 years. And by legislation, legality, I don't know. I mean, nobody's going to complain, hopefully. But these are things that are in the Constitution that hold us back that become regressive because they're very low. Think about, and I, I talk about our son doing this. You know, Peyton would owe eighty-five dollars in Alabama tax or a hundred and something, and zero federal because the exemptions are so different. When you remember, when you start paying federal tax, it's a much higher threshold. Then you really get socked. But you're paying an Alabama tax, and the Department of Revenue tells me it has cost them more through people and electricity and all this, to process that 85 return, that $85 return, then they just exempt it. You know, because 
The Department of Revenue hires, I don't mean, thousands of people to process our tax returns that contain 50 bucks, $85. Now, you pile all that together, that's a lot of money. But, you know, if we're talking about cutting out waste in government, there's an idea. I'd, I want them to find another job. But you know, this thing is built in our Constitution. Why? Uh, Adam, what do you think? Any, uh, any examples that bother you? Well, let's put it this way. Bruce and I don't always see eye to eye. We hold to the old Baptist motto that wherever two or more are gathered, you'll have at least three opinions. <laughs> uh, so what we've tried to do is present to you facts and talk with you about how to think through these problems, not what to think about them. Uh, if you'll remember when we talked last week, the Amendment 1 vote in 2003, which I, I believe the phrase I used was it got killed. Um, yeah. Bruce, Bruce worked on it. I voted for it. We were in a two-to-one minority uh, of people who lost badly. And that was opposed by a lot of folks for different reasons and different rationales. And that opposition took on uh, several different forms. It is generally speaking the same type of opposition or the same categories that you get when you talk about tax reform or constitutional reform in any set of circumstances. There is one segment of the population that has a religious opposition or at least a a religious front to their opposition to tax reform, which we'll show you. And we want to be fair to people who disagree with us. As people who professionally are in charge with fighting, in charge of fighting with other people, we learn to fight fair, and we try to disagree without being disagreeable. So, in an effort to present those opposing views in the best possible light, what we're going to do is share them with you in their own words. So let's go ahead, Charlie, and let's One of the tenets of our organization is to ease the tax burden on all families. Therefore, you find us very much applauding and embracing the concept of giving tax relief to the poor. But we feel like that's a separate issue. I'm fixing to come by and pick up those voters. The Christian Coalition's John Giles said they didn't need a billion-dollar tax hike, but rather more accountability in the way existing money is spent. The money has been there for services. I don't know of anybody that's gone lacking. I don't know of any... Uh, unemployed person that has not gotten a check. I don't know of anybody that didn't get government services that uh, were of a low-income family. Nobody has ever suffered in in this state. So, I, I don't know if you caught that. Nobody has ever suffered in this state. Unless you count the people who are part of a permanent underclass for whom there is no real opportunity, <laughs> then maybe I'd agree with them. Uh, <laughs> unless you count the people who had 53% of the births in this state in 2013 that were paid for by Medicaid, uh, maybe I would agree. So that's one segment of opposition, and that was a faith-based opposition, which to me did not resonate very deeply uh, with the Scripture. So... In an effort to be more fair towards this, Bruce, let's, let's talk about another segment of opposition. Well, <laughs> um, and let me, as a drafter of some of these bills for Governor Riley, who's still one of my favorites, think about the governors who've been impeached or uh, investigated lately. Can you think of any who's not? Siegelman, Bentley, Governor Riley. I told Governor Riley just recently, I said, you bit off too much, you, more than you could chew. You brought in too many opposing viewpoints on, you know, you had property tax here and uh, uh, rental tax over there and these things. And you put all these folks together as a weird, strange bedfellows coalition, they made a, a really strong coalition. And that's why the vote was two to one. Again, if the, I think Governor Riley admitted that if he were to do it all over again, he would probably trim some things back. But um, my, the comment by Gary Palmer, who's, who's a friend of mine, uh, is up there. Yeah, read Gary's comment. Now, Gary headed the Alabama Policy Institute uh, for many years. And, and, again, he's a great guy. I'm happy he went to Congress. 
Um, I think he's doing a great job up there. But but even Gary says, look, uh, you know, you need fiscal accountability, but the state needs more revenue, period. Now, if Gary says that and API says that, that's a pretty fair statement, you know. I mean, I always, you know, it, in, in our in our trials, for example, if 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 somebody says something that's that's a, that's in support of us and they're opposing counsel, that has even more weight, right? So, again, we've had, as Adam points out, we've had 13 years since that last effort, and and Adam induced me to come here and talk to you because of the millennials, primarily. I mean, we I've been through these battles. I still have tire tracks in my back. Um, it's now your turn. It is now your turn to pick up the mantle. And here I am here to encourage you to do just that tonight. Adam? Bruce, actually, I <clears throat> induced you to come because I don't really know that much about tax law. <laughs> yeah. And I'm also really bad at math. <laughs> so it helped to have somebody check the numbers. Um, we had a question last week that was, so what? So what do we do about this? And it's easy to get disgusted, and it's easy to get scared. But let's take a clear-eyed look at where we are and what the options are going forward. Um, You saw this a little bit over the past year. People who are really strongly pro-gambling, they have like this, uh, it's not like a, a, it's more of an economic interest and an ideological bent argument. Like, oh, gambling would cure this problem. And people who believe that will use the funding gap that we have in our constitution uh, helps to create, and our budgets help to create, this funding gap that won't go away. It's going to be, if not permanent, then at least perennial. And people will always try to exploit this and create an environment that doesn't necessarily comport with biblical values. Um, if you think for a second that this is any le- less exploitative than a sales tax, then you haven't seen the math. This is just as exploitative and probably worse with regard to taking advantage of people who are at the bottom of the economic ladder and are the most vulnerable members of society. Uh, there's hope. Your hope. But one other thing is um, Senator Del Marsh and Representative Mac McCutcheon, the Speaker of the House, Dell's President Pro Tem of the Senate, came together and formed a 15, 14-person task force called the Budget and Tax Reform Task Force, appropriately named. And they will meet starting next week. Uh, I decline this time, Adam. <laughs> uh, what is it? Fool me once, shame I've on me. Fool me twice, barrel. won't get fooled again. Yeah, then... Then 12 times, what do you call that? I don't know. But there's hope. They are looking at the entire Alabama tax system again. I mean, and some of these things are kind of no-brainers, frankly, as to what can be done. Uh, again, I've given you some ideas. I mean, we talked about uh, the, the current use issues. Why don't we just follow Georgia and limit current use? Anybody own more than 2,000 acres of land out here? Nobody? Really? Well, Georgia has a current use, a low property value on farmland, timberland, but they cap it at 2,000 acres. Now, if you look at, at the ownership of the timberland in Alabama, it is clustered around five or six companies, some of which are clients, so I'll stop there. But um, they can pay more on property tax. I mean, remember, 2% of our property tax comes from forest land and, and farmland, 2%. The rule is in Alabama, if you doubled our property tax, we'd still be number 50. Think about that. Bruce, could people pick up their trees and move them to neighboring states? Yeah, I don't think Would so. Would we be concerned about that? Yeah, maybe they'd harvest a few more. Um, but, you know, we're, we're a great inventory. Uh, and, of course, we create a lot of auction because of that. That's a good point. But, you know, there's some things we can do that are fairly easy, but they're not going to happen without you prodding your legislators. Your legislators go down there in panic and fear that the, the special interest groups are going to be the only one who fund an opposing campaign. 
And they don't think they have any friends down there who actually support some of these tax reform measures. Uh, We need a stronger Christian influence. Isn't that amazing? We have a fairly strong Christian legislature. I can name some strong believers, but they do not think you have their back. Trust me. They do not think you have their back. They do not think you care or that you're willing to put uh, some prayer and some time into the effort. And, you know, unfortunately, elections are about getting reelected, right? And they may feel absolutely, you know, God has put me here. I need to be reelected and reelected. I love Richard Shelby, but don't you think it's probably time for Senator Shelby? He's 80, you know, probably time to retire. But they need to hear from you. And this budget uh, committee from Dell and Mac is a great way. It starts next week, y'all. Next week it starts. They're going to finish their work by the fifth legislative day of the 2017 session, which is end of February. So you've got some time, but start contacting your legislators. If you don't know who they are, send me an email and, and tell me your address, and I'll tell you who they are. There's a, there's a lookup chart actually on the Alabama legislature website. You type in a zip code and your address, they'll say, all right, your rep is this person, your senator is that person. Write them. It's funny that, you know, once they get into session, they are bombarded with letters and emails. But when they're out of session, very few. And, y'all, the Bible says that perfect love drives out fear. That is true. What we need to understand is that there is really nothing to be afraid of in this issue. There's nothing to be afraid of in government. There isn't. Because we know how this turns out. We've seen the last chapter of the book, okay? You don't have anything to be afraid of. What our obligation is and what our right is, is to share this sort of love with the community around us and understand that other people who bear the image of Christ just as much as you and I do may not have the same or similar set of circumstances and life experiences, And if we are going to love those people well, if we are going to love people well who have had a different set of experiences from us, then we need to understand their burden. We need to understand our obligation to help lighten that burden. We've given you resources on that one sheet for information and for opportunities to understand what life is like in different parts of the state. Uh, Bruce's article is available. We're going to try and get it put on the Shades website. It's also available by email and a PDF. The Parka website, we've given you a link to that, which Parka, in my opinion, and I'm not saying this because Bruce is sitting here, Parka is the gold standard for information about Alabama legislative work and facts about how things operate in this state. The Alabama Policy Institute website, the Arise Citizens Policy Project website, we've given you those. The Legislative Fiscal Office, we've given you that. The information is there. If you want it, it is there. For information regarding how and where to engage, we've given you that. So if you want to learn to build empathy, if you want to see what life is like for people who are different than you, Shades makes it very easy. I don't think you adequately can process how easy it is to get involved. One of our local missions partners, Christian Service Mission with Tracy Hipson, right there, Tracy will introduce you to people and places that you don't know exist. And that's good, right? Try to be engaged in your local community. Try to understand. And if you need to get some distance on this, Samford and Judson, two historical Baptist colleges, work very closely with missions in Perry County, Alabama, which is in the middle of the Black Belt. If you've never been to Perry County, Alabama, I would urge you to go there or somewhere else. Uh, It is a fantastic opportunity to learn about a place that is different from where you grew up. I mean, Sometimes I worry about my kids from the fact that they've grown up, grown up in a place that is so different from where I grew up. Uh, I grew up in rural Madison County, Alabama. Nobody lived within, you know, a quarter mile of me that wasn't related to me, which is great. And, you know, you talked about there being more fish than people in Arkansas. There were more cows than people on Patterson Lane, and it was fantastic. Uh, <laughs> there's also an organization here in Birmingham called Growing Kings, that if you're interested in volunteering and learning about what life is like in downtown Birmingham, there are young men that 
need mentoring that you can get involved with. So the opportunities are there. And now, having said all of this, you probably have questions. Uh, do we want to hold the, the options or do we want to talk through the options? Let's talk through the options first. Okay. Uh, and let me also put in a plug for Urban Purpose, one of our favorite organizations. And we're going to call on Tracy in just a minute, too. Um, but let's, let's flip to the back here, okay? Got the, are these on slides? Yeah. Okay. Slay Blackwell throws this out uh, to all the Chamber of Commerce and, and SOAR meetings and said, okay, if you all want to raise taxes, let's go through this list and you tell me which one you want to raise. You know, everybody's going, you don't get a lot of consensus. Increase the sales tax, $370 million. Privatize ABC stores. A lot of people favor that. Uh, okay. Landowners' real estate taxes, I would say it's the higher side of $500 million if you do anything on the current use value for Timberland and so forth. Remove the federal income tax deduction. We're one of the only two states that has a full federal income tax deduction. You can deduct your federal taxes on your state return and vice versa. So you get kind of a cross accrual and a, a nice little benefit there. We're only one of two states that allows that entirely. Iowa has a half deduction. Uh, Remove the home mortgage interest deduction. Everybody goes, well, start. skip that one. Uh, personal exemption deduction. Well, the, our personal exemptions are low anyways. I don't know. Uh, cigarette tax, go, you know, go with that. Beer tax, uh, water and soft drinks, maybe. Uh, tax on beer and wine, go with that. Uh, lottery, okay. Now, let's go back to the lottery again. The lottery is supposed to raise $250 million. Well, what you didn't hear was, in the first year, lotteries go like this. And what was it going to fund? The general fund. This M word, Medicaid. Now, do you see Medicaid going down or up? So, lottery this way, Medicaid this way. There's a lot of reasons to oppose a lottery, but from a tax nerd standpoint, that one got me real quick. We were watching Medicaid go up and up and up and up. And again, remember the, the rhetorical question I asked you last week? Do you see a correlation between Medicaid, education, and corrections? Do you see a correlation between those three? Please tell me you do. Okay. All right, back to four, uh, a few more of these. How about sale of marijuana? Whoa. I Danny? don't think you meant personally, right? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, how about but that's $80 million to $134 million in revenue based on the tax foundation's projections. Yeah. What about uh, a, a, a pact with the Indian tribes? That number is low, folks, let me tell you. That number is way low. Uh, my old buddy Luther Strange raided a, uh, a gambling, uh, just a small blockhouse in Macon County. They walked out of there with $600,000 of cash. Where is it coming from? Uh, so that that's a low number, but that's you know that's a, you know again the problem is the quid pro quo, as you've heard about the Indians go okay fine you can tax us but you know we get to do these other things. And so what you're seeing is is an overarching set of incentives and choices that we get to we get to choose right. Um, if you want a state that relies on sin taxes and uh, behaviors that we believe are morally detrimental, then we could probably get that. If you want a state that encourages values that we support, then there are ways to get that too. Yeah. We're gonna, we have a time for just a couple questions before we move into small groups. If anybody sure. has anything that they would like to ask of Bruce or Adam. Logan. I realize you guys have spent a lot of time talking about the role of church in government. However, a common opposition that I hear to your line of thinking is let the government be the government and let the church be the church. It's the church's job to care for the poor, not my government's. Um, what is your response to that? There, there are several responses. One is you know, that probably worked in, in the, the Old Testament days and the early New Testament days when, when uh, even in, you know, after, uh, you know, the church was, was basically taken over by government. That works. 
But we have such a different model in the United States, where, and we now rely so heavily on the government. Now, am I saying church shouldn't do its part? Absolutely not. Church would be leading this. But the model we have is so different than, than the early church days where the, where the church did everything. I mean, it was the Catholic church in those days. And, but So there, you know, it's something to think about and talk about, but it, it doesn't match current, uh, current models of government and church. And philosophically speaking, if, if you are going to be a Christian who allows the gospel to transform every area of your life and you work in government or you're engaged in government, then that's an area of your life that the gospel has got to be involved in. Jesus comes into your heart and he plants the flag and he says, it's mine, all of it, all of it. And you can't separate in your mind these issues of, well, you know, structurally, maybe this or that. Well, I get that. And sometimes you have to make choices that are not perfect choices. So I'm not advocating this sort of uh, moral absolutism for everybody because that's not the way that the world works, right? But if it doesn't inform the way that you think about things, then you've got a hole in your gospel. And you've got a blind spot. I've heard that name of that whole the gospel. Yeah. Any did you remember? Any other questions, comments? Matt? So if I hear you correctly, you've said that our aggressive tax code means that we kind of have a permanent lower class. We have winners and we have losers. And one of the implications of that is that we have good schools uh, and we have bad schools. So it's just strange that tax-funded public schools are worse in poor areas than they are in rich areas. That's, an, an, I guess, a systemic injustice. And so my question is, you know, we are over the mountain. We have good schools typically, and we have churches in those areas that thrive as a result of being in those parts of the city that are kind of comprised of winners. Aren't those churches in some ways morally complicit in this kind of two-tiered system in our state? In other words, are we kind of part of, by maintaining the status quo, are we kind of guilty of perpetuating this kind of winner and loser division? Well, that's a good question. (laughs) So it is a good question, and it is a good question. And we benefit because, you know, as a church with faithful tithing members and people who give, we benefit from our people doing well economically, right? Structurally, I don't know that churches are complicit. I do, however, think that their members may be complicit. But this is not new, right? The Southern Baptist Convention was, the Southern Baptist denomination was formed in, you know, 1844 because we wanted to send slaveholder missionaries to foreign lands, and the northern Baptists voted us out. Good call by them, right? I mean, you you can't say that every image bearer of God needs to hear the gospel when you have people owning other people. In Particularly in our local predicament, let's say, um, in this city, you have... Christians who don't necessarily look like the Christians that populate the large portion of this church that have had entirely different life experiences. For example, uh, Dr. King did not write the letter from the Birmingham jail to people that were non-believers. He wrote it to white ministers of the gospel here in Birmingham that were turning away, uh, turning a blind eye to the plight of the civil rights movement. So we have a long tradition of cognitive dissonance in churches, and this is just another example of that. But, and to, to supplement, I mean, I'll put Dan in the spot here, having been in the finance committee for a number of years. I mean, I want to answer this question, but what do you think the, the, the percentage of the members of our church who actually tithe? Maybe. Dan, I want to ask you that one. Uh, but think about it. I mean, so, so we're not putting our money where our mouth is first. Secondly is to, to answer this question in a different way is there are so many different opportunities here 
to get involved. But you have to get off the couch, turn off the iPad, and get involved. But there's so many things in downtown Birmingham, Urban Purpose, CSM. Uh, Tracy, give him the microphone there, Chad. Tracy begs for people just to go down there and box stuff up. I mean, I, you know, I'm not really preaching the gospel in the corner when I do that. But, I mean, Tracy, what are your three biggest needs at CSM? Well, it's never been about boxing things up. It's, it's about justice. It's about mercy. It's about loving your neighbor. It's about attacking those issues of education. Today we dealt with three major issues of education, just helping the poor. How do you get people out of payday loans? I mean, that is killing people. You know, the poor are dying because of that. You know, and we have solutions and we're not participating in it. Uh, just just loving people. And so, I mean, just, it, our facility is a place that comes and convenes. It's kind of a neutral place. So we'll, we get people all day long and people that come in like yourselves and just come and help. Yeah. Serve the poor and you will uh, know what it what it feels like. One quick, two quick closing thoughts before Chad moves us into the small group discussion. Uh, number one, this discussion tonight is unique for us, but discussions like this are happening all across the country in churches all over the place. Churches that look like ours and churches that don't. Uh, there is something called the AND campaign working out of urban churches in Atlanta where African-American Christians are saying, listen, the politics of the left leaves us cold and the politics of right is not compassionate. There's got to be a different and better way where what we value can be lived out, not just in uh, our lives, but also in systems and policies that encourage the values that we support. So be encouraged. Take heart that this is a conversation that is happening here and it's happening other places. And so eventually, eventually, there could be an opportunity to turn this. The last thing, and I'm going to call out my friend Sheree, who just walked in, Sheree Grant and I, we are friends because we were in the Alabama State Bar Leadership Forum, and I came to Sheree's investiture, and I told her that I was doing this tonight, and she came to watch me, and that's very nice of you. Thanks for showing up. Um, before we move into the question time, I'm going to tell you something. When I went to Sheree's investiture, I have never heard the gospel preached in a courtroom. <laughs> However, she did it. It was, it was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Uh, so, Chad, I'm sorry I went over. That's great. We're going to move into a small group uh, discussion now. You've got uh, sheets at your table that has, have a list of 20 questions on them. Tonight we're going to be looking at questions 5, 8, 13 and 19. The questions will also be listed on the screen, 5, 8, 13, and 19. This is an opportunity for you to interact with the content from tonight in small group discussion. If you are sitting in a row of chairs and not around a table, please find some friends. Um, you're going to have about 10 minutes or so to, uh, to work on this. As we finish our time together tonight, I want to make mention of three things real briefly, if I could have your attention. Um, one is that the question sheet that we use each week, I just kind of want to remind you why we work from the same list of 20 questions every time and we just choose uh, three or four to kind of dialogue around. Um, our goal on Wednesday night as lenses is to really try and view all of life through the lens of the gospel. So the goal is that these questions would translate to any topic or conversation or thing that you are kind of uh, working through in your own life that you could use this as a tool not just for our conversation on Wednesday nights but even personally. So you can feel free to take these questions with you uh, but no, we'll keep working on them uh, through the remainder of the year. Um, second is I would like for you to join me in thanking Bruce and Adam for uh, presenting these past two weeks. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Uh, thank you for the energy and effort and work that you put into leading us and educating us. It has been very well served. So thank you very much. Um, and also want to let you know that next uh, week we will begin a, a two-week uh, series, two-part series um, on Jesus and humor. It's called Jesus Laughed. Um, Jacob Simmons, who's on our staff team, uh, will be leading that. Little known fact, well, maybe it's not little known. Jacob is also personally involved in an improvisation group and has been for the past several years um, and is just really a master at his craft. He's really, really great. Um, so that'll be the next. He's the second funniest person at his own house. Suzanne's really funny. She's really funny. Um, so that will be, uh, that will be starting next, uh, next week and go for, uh, 
the 28th, and then the week after that as well. So if you'd stand uh, with me, we're going to close our time together in, uh, in praying uh, and praying the prayer on the screen together, and then we will be, uh, will be dismissed. Will you pray with me? Grant, O God, that your holy life giving spirit may so move every human heart and especially the hearts of the people of this land that barriers which divide us may crumble, suspicions disappear, and hatreds cease, that our divisions being healed, we may live in justice and peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you and have a good night.